the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. When it comes to the book of Revelation, the language can become a bit colorful, a bit challenging to track, if you will. We're taking a look at judgment nonetheless, whether it's bowls or seals, it's all God dealing with unrighteousness, as we'll see today on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. Judgment. It is a strong word. None of us really like that word judgment, unless, of course, we're in a courtroom and it is judgment being handed down against someone who's done you wrong. But that is exactly what is taking place here in Scripture. It is judgment being handed down to those who have offended God. We're in Revelation chapter 15 today as we continue our look at the bowls of divine wrath. Part two. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. The song of the Lamb is how God has delivered his people from captivity and has created them as his people because of the redemption we have in Christ. So let's read the song of Moses. And as we're reading it, think of Jesus. We will read the first 18 verses of chapter 15. This is what the triumph of Christians sing. The Song of Moses, verse 1 of chapter 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord for his tri- triumphant glorious, gloriously, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congelled in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. 
Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Tell your people, O Lord, pass by. Tell the people, pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. So you see how easy it is for a Christian to sing that song, applying it to the Lord Jesus Christ. The song of Moses is the song of the Lamb, how God has redeemed his people through Christ, destroying their enemies and giving them victory. Now here is a portion of the song as John sees it in verse 3. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Everything God does is great and marvelous. But the emphasis here in the first two verses is the fact that this Lord God, whose acts are great and marvelous, is the Almighty God. The omnipotent God whose power is unlimited in doing whatever he wills. The focus here is on omnipotence. What was the great perfection of God displayed in the Exodus? It was his omnipotence and his grace. Israel didn't deserve to be redeemed, but God redeemed Israel by his omnipotent arm. Omnipotent enough to destroy destroy Egypt by the plagues. He turned the Nile into blood. He caused the Red Sea to part and then caused it to come back together again to drown the Pharaoh's army. The great display of redemption in the Old Testament was a display of God's omnipotence, His irresistible power that can never be thwarted by man. And, if, and it was, of course, by sheer grace. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Have you ever noticed that the Apostles' Creed that we recite often is actually pretty concise? It's very short. And in something like that, you just simply can't say everything. And the purpose of the Creed is to impress us with the historical basis of Christianity So you don't really have time nor space to repeat yourself with something as small and concise as the Apostles' Creed. But there is something that is said twice in the Creed. Because the writers of the Creed thought it was important. And that is that God is almighty. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. He rules over all, and now he rules over all through Christ. I love this next section, this next sentence. It's actually a question. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Think about that. If you're omnipotent, If you have power to do whatever you want to do, and if your intention is to save the nations of the world, to destroy the rebels and save the rest, who will not fear you? 
and glorify your name. Not one single person. The point is that if God carries out his intention of destroying his enemies and saving the rest, the rest will eventually be saved. For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you. Now, is that all without distinction or without exception? I don't know. But the point is, the global conversion of the nations that we know will take place after God uproots those who are impenitently hard. And it will take place because God is the Almighty. But notice also why it says, all of the nations will come and worship before you for your righteousness, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, in the New Testament, the revelation of God's righteousness has two closely related meanings. In Romans 1.16, speaking of the gospel, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And in Romans 1.17, he says, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the first meaning of the phrase, the righteous acts of God, when God reveals his righteousness, it is talking about justification. He is talking about declaring a believing sinner to be accepted into God's family and to have his sins forgiven the moment he believes, not because of anything in him, but because of the credited righteousness of Christ to his account. And the second way the phrase revealed righteousness is used is found in Revelation 19.11. Concerning Christ, it says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. So when it says in verse 4 that all the nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. What he is saying is because God reveals his righteousness in the destruction of incorrigible enemies. And because God displays his righteousness in the saving of sinners. All nations will come and worship before him. Now that brings us to verses 5 and 8. And there you have something about a temple. So let's turn to Revelation 15, verses 5 through 8. After this I looked, and the temple of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with gold sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now, here again we come to some Old Testament figures of speech that are applied to God. And there are some things... That when we talk about God, all we know to do is to use anthropomorphic terminology. That is, all we know sometimes to say about God is to speak of him in human terms, even though we know those terms are not literal but figurative. 
But sometimes God is just too big for us to talk about other than metaphorically. So here it talks about a temple or a tabernacle in heaven. Now the temple on earth and the tabernacle before that was God's home on earth. It was a pledge of God's presence with his people. It was where God met to fellowship with his people on earth. And to speak of his temple in heaven is to speak of his actual place of majesty, the true and eternal sanctuary of God, where God, as it were, reigns over all in heaven. This isn't an idea on our part. This is an idea that we find particularly in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 9, 6 through 11, we see a contrast between the, what the writer of Hebrews describes as the outer temple, that is, the literal temple that was built during the days of Moses, then later the temple. To contrast the outer temple with the true temple in heaven, here is what it says, Hebrews 9, 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is to say, not of his creation. And also in Hebrews, we're reminded that Moses was given a blueprint to build a tabernacle on earth that was a copy of the heavenly. So this tabernacle in heaven is a metaphor concerning where the majestic and transcended God in all of his majesty dwells. Revelation 5, 5. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. That is, the very presence of God in heaven was opened. Now the person who opened the temple of God in heaven was Christ. There's another theme in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 10, 19 through 20 says this about Christians and Jesus. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place, the presence of God, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So it was at the death of the Lord Jesus Christ when the veil, that separated the holy of holies from the holy place was miraculously ripped from the top to the bottom. And that was, of course, to let you know that man did not do this. This was all of God. And now that room that was the holiest room in all of the world for the ancient Hebrews, which only the high priest could enter in once a year, now that veil that separated every from that, everyone from that room is gone because of the blood of Jesus. And now any believer through Jesus' blood can enter the body, the holy of holies, and into God's very presence. So he's using terms we see in the Old Testament. Verse 5 again, after these things I looked and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened because of the blood of Christ. And seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chest with golden sashes. They are pictured here as priests. That's the way they were dressed, those who had to do with the holy temple. So these terrible bowls of wrath that brings such final destruction upon the nations, they are not merely acts of nature. They are things that happen by God's providence. 
They are sent from the temple. They are sent from the very presence of God. It was God who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D., It was God who destroyed Rome in the 5th century. And when we go back throughout history and we see pagan nations now buried in the dust, we understand that the destruction that came upon those nations came from the temple itself. They came from Almighty God and not from mere natural acts. The final judgment that is poured out upon these nations comes from the living God Himself, beloved. Let's go on. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven bowls of, full of wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Now remember, I've talked about these four living creatures before. And among other things, they represent all of the energies and the forces and powers of creation. And now we do have a statement that says when God goes to finally destroy a nation, that had the opportunity to repent but would not, he uses all of the energies and forces and resources of creation to do it. He turns all of creation against his enemies in in destroying them. The Nile River was the life of Egypt, and God turned it into blood. It was the very source of life for Egypt, and God turned it into death. He uses all the forces of creation to bring down his enemies and destroy them. Verse 8. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. There were two times in the Old Testament when the Holy of Holies in the temple was filled with this bright, fiery visualization of the glory of God, and no one could enter that temple because of that glory. The first one was at the dedication of the temple, and the second was when the Ark of the Covenant was placed into the temple. So when the glory cloud fills the temple, no one can come near it. Here we are impressed again with the glory and the greatness of our eternal God. Nations are not eternal, but this eternal, great and glorious God, whose actions are always great and marvelous. Now His glory so fills the temple, and His majesty is so transcendent, that no one can enter, so to speak, until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Next week, we'll look at the seven bowls of wrath, but let me make this conclusion. These two chapters describe for us what the Christian is to expect to take place on earth before the end of time. The Christian is to expect the destruction of all of of the enemies of the church, the pouring out of the bowls of wrath on impenitent nations, And the saint's ability to stand on the sea of glass and be victorious as all the nations are brought by the omnipotence of God to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, that is what we are to expect. We are to expect victory in space and time over our enemies and the increasing of the church. 
For it is the most powerful, largest organization or institution, whatever you want to call it, on the face of the earth. It will be. And all of the other various nations of the world that haven't been destroyed by God's wrath will be brought into the church as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we are to expect in light of prophecies like this. But understand, it is also the Christian program for action. We are not only to expect the omnipotence the omnipotent God to bring the world to Christ, to cleanse it by his judgment and to convert the rest. But that is to be our agenda. That is what we are to plan and work toward. We are to plan by evangelism and world missions and all other various aspects that go with it, bringing every area of life into submission to Christ and to his word. We are to work toward the day when this culture, as well as the various cultures of the world that have not been destroyed by God's wrath, they will embrace Christ and bow before him as king of all kings. One final thought. These bowls of wrath that symbolize God's final judgment on a culture in which there is no possibility for repentance have not been poured out on the United States yet. We are still standing, barely. You look at our economy now. You look at the terroristic threats all around us. You look at the lying media and the power-hungry, greedy politicians and understand that a sovereign, omnipotent God can just snap his fingers and cause everything to come tumbling down. God has given us one initial judgment after another, like the one that we are under right now. And throughout the last century, and now the 21st century, World War I, the Depression, a tyrannical administration under FDR, World War II, Vietnam, the Twin Towers on 9-11, an administration after administration that takes us further and further down the road to totalitarianism. Poor economies, nuclear weapons in Iran and North Korea, brothers and sisters in Christ being persecuted and slaughtered around the world. All over the world, we have these preparatory judgments. But God says, America, you still have time to repent. The bowls have not been poured out on your country yet. God, for some reason, is still being merciful to us. And you and I must repent of our sins and be faithful in the little things every day. Calling Americans and America to repentance while there is still time. Because he who stiffens his neck after frequently being reproved shall suddenly be destroyed. And that without remedy. Amen. Let us pray. We thank you, Father, for the 15th and 16th chapters of Revelation. We thank you for what they teach us, that in these plagues you prepare the way. You remove the obstacles for spiritual, cultural conquests with the gospel. 
Help us to truly believe that. Help us to expect a world that you have cleansed from incorrigible nations and convert the rest. Help us to work and pray toward that day. And, oh, God, we pray for our poor America. We pray that you would deliver her and deliver her church from apostasy. Deliver her society from its depravity and bring her to repentance while there is still time before the bowls of wrath are poured out for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, that's all the time we have. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner, the ministry of Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. It is our goal and desire that you would abound in grace through the preaching and teaching of God's Word. And that is why we come to you on a daily basis. Now, as we close out our time together, we also realize that some of these messages that are presented here on Abounding Grace are well worth reviewing again at your convenience. Maybe you joined us a bit late. Well, we have copies on CD. They're just $5. Mention today's date as you call or write to us. Here's how to get in touch with us. The phone number is 408-866-5607. That's 408 408- Eight six six five six zero seven. You're welcome to also visit our website, learn a bit more about us. We're at reformedheritage.org. Again, reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, if you would love to partner with us, if you're feeling led of the Lord to become a financial partner with us as we continue this ministry here on this station, please write to us at PMB number 402. And the address is 1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Or, again, simply call us, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. You're also welcome to join us for worship. Sunday services here at Reformed Heritage Church are at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. We meet at the Lone Hill Church, 2 in the afternoon. Directions can be found at reformedheritage.org or by, again, calling 408-866-5607. We thank you for joining us and trust we'll see you again next time we get together for another broadcast of Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. (music) 